As happy as a butter clam When tides are high I sing A grateful ode to Puget Sound The land of everything I love it from Tulalip To Puyallup, Squim and Pisht And to the Dosey Wallops Where so many times I fished From Brennan to the Boca Chile, From Lummi to La Push and from the lordly sawduck to lovely duckabush, from Samish to Sammamish, Suquamish to Quillacine, the climate is so friendly, it's a land that's evergreen. Hello, and welcome to the History of the Evergreen State podcast. I'm your host, John C., and thank you for joining me today for episode 16. Jimi Hendrix, A West Coast Seattle Boy, Part 1 Rolling Stone, which ranked Jimi Hendrix at the top of their 100 Greatest Guitarists of All Time list, had this to say of Jimi, Jimi Hendrix exploded our idea of what rock music could be. He manipulated the guitar, the whammy bar, the studio, and the stage. It's almost like you can hear the riots in the streets and the napalm bombs dropping in the star-spangled banner. Jimi Hendrix was born Johnny Allen Hendrix on November 27, 1942, at Seattle's King County Hospital, which is today known as Harborview. His mother was named Lucille Jeter, and she was from the small mining town of Roslyn in Kittitas County. By the time of his birth, Jimmy's father, James Allen Al Hendrix, was serving overseas in the Pacific during World War II. Alan Lucille had first met while attending a dance featuring the legendary jazz pianist Fats Waller one night in 1941. Al had developed a love of competitive dancing and music, which he had probably inherited from his mother. You see, Jimmy's family roots in the Evergreen State can be traced back to our state's first World's Fair, the 1909 Alaska-Yukon Pacific Exposition, which was held on the then-heavily forested grounds of the University of Washington in 1909. Jimmy's grandmother, Nora Rose Hendricks, was a dancer at the AYPE with Lacey's band and their traveling vaudeville troupe. They put on quite a popular show that was called the Great Dixieland Spectacle. Nora's husband, Bertrand Hendricks, worked for the organization as a stagehand and a roadie. Family legend states that after the exposition concluded in October of 1909, the troupe was left stranded in Seattle without future bookings and disbanded. By 1912, Nora and Bertrand were residing in Vancouver, British Columbia, where they welcomed their second child, Alan, into the world in 1919. After meeting at that Fats Waller dance in 1941, the pair married in early 1942, and Johnny was brought into the world just a few months later. Lucille had never really moved on from her rowdy and carefree partying days, and as a result, she had developed a reputation for being unfaithful. One of her suspected partners was named Johnny Williams, so when Al got back home from his military service overseas in 1946, one of the first things he did was he legally changed his son Johnny's name to James Marshall Hendricks, but everyone usually just called him Jimmy. This name change was a symptom of the couple's rapidly deteriorating relationship and was probably a way for Al to sort of erase any lingering thought that Jimmy was an illegitimate child. We'll never know for sure if he was, though, and neither did Al, but the coincidence was at least worth pointing out. Lucille liked to party hard and often, and in doing so, she developed quite an alcohol problem as well as some psychiatric issues. 
By 1947, the Hendricks family was living at Seattle's Rainier Vista housing project, and you could easily describe Jimmy's home life as dysfunctional. Lucille was by all accounts a kind and loving mother when she was home. But that was a rare occurrence. She had developed a habit of disappearing oftentimes for days on end. These disappearing acts led to frequent disputes between his mother and father, which often led to domestic violence. During this time, Jimmy attended kindergarten at Rainier Vista Elementary School. Despite all of their problems, Jimmy's parents stuck together for four more years. To Al's great surprise, the couple welcomed their second son, Leon Morris Hendricks, in 1948. Three additional children would be born, but they would be fostered out. By December of 1951, the couple would be divorced. Al was granted custody of the children, but money was always very tight for Al around this time, and he struggled to make ends meet as a single father raising two boys. Jimmy then began attending Horace Mann Elementary School on Cherry Street, and his father Al began working odd jobs, which included being a janitor, gas station attendant, and a gardener. Jimmy and Leon were both taken in at times by relatives, friends, neighbors, and maybe about a half dozen foster homes. Al was finally able to stabilize the situation and was able to bring Jimmy back to the home he had bought in 1950, which was located on South Washington Street in the Central District. Around this time, Al brought home a beat-up old ukulele that only had one string, but it was better than the broom that Jimmy was using before. According to Jimmy, his father got tired of coming home to find straw all over his bedroom floor because Jimmy would sit on the edge of his bed and use the broom as a guitar while he strummed along to his father's records. Jimmy stated that his father ended up beating him whenever this happened. Luckily, though, Al spotted Jimmy's growing interest and did what he could to help his son's talent blossom. By the mid-1950s, Jimmy was attending classes at Leshy Elementary School on 32nd Avenue and was also a member of their football team. Being a Seattle kid in the mid-50s, he also loved hydroplane races that were held annually on Lake Washington during Seafair. It's not known if he ever dragged a homemade hydro behind his bike as a kid, but I like to think he did. Jimmy also loved listening to the radio from an early age and enjoyed his father's small collection of blues and jazz records. At first, the only radio stations that initially played big beat music were tiny FM operations out of Tacoma and Bremerton. They aired specialty shows that were hosted by local groundbreaking African-American DJs like Fitzgerald Eager Beaver and Bob Summeries. But by 1957, though, Top 40 stations were playing the early hits of Elvis and the like. There is no proof of this, and given the family's strained financial situation, it's highly unlikely, but several publications have stated that when Jimmy was 15, he attended an Elvis Presley concert at Six Stadium in 1957. Again, this likely didn't happen, but the family does have in their archives a sketch that Jimmy did of Elvis playing his guitar. 1957 proved to be the year that he got his first guitar to replace that tattered and beat-up old ukulele. Granted, it was the used one his father had picked up from a friend for five bucks, but at least it had all of its intended strings. He almost immediately taught himself how to tune the guitar, and soon he was learning songs, in particular the catchy three chords of Louie Louie. At the same time, he started jamming to songs that he heard being played on the radio, or theme songs he had heard from the television. 1958 saw Jimmy enrolled at Meany Junior High School on 20th Avenue East, and he also soon began jamming with some neighborhood buddies, Purnell Alexander, Butch Snipes, and Luther Rabb after school. 
He went on to form his first band with Alexander and Rab, which had the awesome name of the Velvetones. Since he only had an acoustic guitar, the Velvetones could only jam at first. That wouldn't last for long, though, because Al bought Jimmy a Supro electric guitar from Meyer's Music Shop on First Avenue. Undoubtedly grateful, Jimmy probably couldn't help but be a little frustrated that the guitar didn't come with an amp. He'd have to borrow one from his friends and bandmates. Since everyone in the Velvetones were all still pretty young, they were not able to play the local club circuit, but instead they got gigs at some recreation hall teen dances like the ones that were held at Yesler Terrace where Jimmy and his family once lived. The Velvetones also played some school dances and a few backyard parties. From playing these small gigs, Jimmy was able to start building a fan base due to his totally unique sound. He was making sounds with his guitar that were unknown at that point and people were eating it up. His unique sound in part came due to the fact that he was left-handed, but he couldn't afford to pay for a left-handed guitar. So he made it work with second-hand guitars, which were meant for right-handed people. He made it all work by swapping the position of the strings. Maybe he did not want to, or perhaps was not able to, flip the position of the coils or the pickups. The result was that the part of the coil that was designed to pick up the notes from the chunky strings was now amplifying the vibrations from the thin strings and vice versa, curating a signature sound of bright high notes and dark low notes. The Velvetones, much to the delight of their small but growing fan base, began to include an original song by Jimmy, which was called Jimmy's Blues. Time passed, and then Jimmy found himself in his second band, The Rocking Teens. Soon, though, their name changed to the Rocking Kings. He was a fan of area bands such as Seattle's Dave Lewis Combo and Tacoma's Whalers. Seeing the rising success of these bands, Jimmy began daydreaming for more, wishing to play the larger venues that his bands had so far been restricted from. 1960 saw that opportunity present itself when he was invited to join another band, James Thomas and his Hellcats. This was a new band that was established by an older guy who knew what he was doing and was able to get his band booked at larger area venues. The band played seafare picnics and some officers clubs at various military installations, including Everett's Painfield, Fort Lewis, and Moses Lake's Larson Air Force Base. Soon, Jimmy would become quite familiar with military life. It was around this time that Jimmy got a Dan Electro guitar, which was to replace his guitar that was stolen during a gig at the Birdland Club. Jimmy's childhood and home life was unstable and fractured and was hardly mitigated by strict discipline that was shown by Al. The end result was that Jimmy was quite versed in how to get in trouble. Later, he would claim to be expelled from the high school that I went to, the Central District's Garfield High School, for bad-mouthing a teacher in 1960, but that is more than likely false with the school record showing that he simply dropped out. His troubles escalated from there when, while not earning enough money to support the extravagant and expensive clothing, he reportedly partook in several acts of burglary at stores. He reportedly wasn't afraid to steal to get the things that he desired. This was then taken up a notch when on May 2, 1961, he was arrested for riding in a stolen vehicle. He would be arrested for the same exact thing again four days later though it's unknown if he was doing it in the same car. That would be pretty funny if it was, though. Hendricks joined the Army at the end of that month, which was probably an alternative for serving a jail sentence for the two felonies that he had previously committed. June of 1961 would find Private Hendricks dropping down and giving push-ups at Fort Ord on Monterey Bay along the coast of California. 
Jimmy would be stationed at Fort Campbell, Kentucky, and soon he wrote a letter to his dad asking him to send him his Dan Electro guitar, which he obliged. He completed his paratrooper training in just over eight months, and Jimmy was awarded the prestigious Screaming Eagles patch on January 11, 1962. By February, his personal conduct had begun to draw criticism from his superiors. They labeled him an unqualified marksman and often caught him napping while on duty and failing to report for bed checks. Hendrix's platoon sergeant, James C. Spears, filed a report in which he stated, he has no interest whatsoever in the Army. It is my opinion that Private Hendricks will never come up to the standards required of a soldier. I feel that the military service will benefit if he is discharged as soon as possible. Jimmy wasn't the only musician at Fort Campbell, though, and soon he came to the attention of bass player Billy Cox. Hendricks and Cox became buddies, and they soon formed a band together and began calling themselves the King Casuals. God, he always came up with the coolest band names. Though the two had obvious talent, nothing ever really came of this band, mainly due to Jimmy's frequent money problems, which often found him pawning his guitar for a few bucks and was often the source of great frustration amongst his bandmates. In addition to rubbing his band members the wrong way, Hendrix frequently irritated his military officers. On June 29, 1962, Hendricks was granted a general discharge under honorable conditions. He later spoke of his dislike of the Army and lied that he had received a medical discharge after breaking his ankle during his 26th parachute jump. Charles Cross stated in his 2005 biography of Jimmy, other Army medical documents show that he stated that he was gay, which at the time was a surefire way to get yourself mustered out early. He left Fort Campbell with $400 to his name after he sold his Dan Electro guitar to an army buddy. Hendricks then moved to Clarksville, Tennessee, where he lived near a jazz bar that he liked quite a bit. He liked it so much, in fact, that one night he reportedly spent $384 there, which is almost $3,300 today given inflation. He soon returned to Fort Campbell, where he begged his army friend to sell him back the guitar, which he agreed to. Soon, Jimmy was making a few bucks here and there playing solo gigs until his friend Billy Cox could finish his enlistment. That enlistment ended in September of 1962 when Billy Cox left the army and soon the two would reform their group, the King Casuals. They then set their sights on the capital city of American music, Nashville, Tennessee. They quickly began to dominate the black nightclub scene of Nashville, where they played such venues as the Del Morocco and the Jolly Roger. They supported touring stars like the Marvelettes and Curtis Mayfield and Carla Thomas. Things began to look up for Jimmy, and he was even able to buy a train ticket to visit his paternal grandmother, Nora, in Vancouver around Christmas of 1963. After he arrived in New York, his prospects were initially pretty slim, but he soon won a talent competition that was held at Harlem's iconic Apollo Theater, which gave him a badly needed $25 in cash. He began to hang around local clubs, trying to jam with the house bands whenever he got the chance. It was at one of these venues, the Palm Cafe, where he met and quickly became infatuated with a woman by the name of Lithophane Pridion, who was the former lover of the King of Soul himself, Sam Cooke. Pridion had connections to the Harlem music scene. Apparently, the feelings were mutual, and she described Jimmy as skinny, raw-boned, and underfed-looking. 
After she became his latest conquest, she helped him break into the Harlem music scene and gave him a place to crash at night. In the winter of 1964, Jimmy came to the attention of an associate of the Isley brothers, Tony Rice. Ron Isley later recalled Tony Rice describing Hendrix as just a kid, but he was the best, and that he played right-handed guitar with his left hand. Ron told Tony that the kid can't be that good, then asked him if he was better than the guys they wished they had in their band, and Tony answered, swearing that he's better than any of them. Their interest in Jimmy was now piqued, and they had invited him out to New Jersey to audition to join their band. Apparently, when he arrived, all of his worldly possessions, or a lack thereof, were stored in his battered and otherwise empty guitar case. Someone let him borrow their guitar, and he proceeded to play two searing renditions of their two chart toppers, Twist and Shout and Shout. He would be a member of their backing group, the IB Specials, by the end of that afternoon. Having no place to stay, the brothers let Jimmy crash at their mother's house. He earned 30 bucks a night on the touring circuit, a respectable amount of money back in those days. His flamboyant scarves and bracelets clashed with the Isley's clean-cut image, and Hendrix recalled in a 1967 interview with Rave, We weren't even allowed to go on stage looking casual. If our shoelaces were two different types, we'd get fined five bucks. Oh man, did I get tired of that. Jimmy toured with the Isley brothers during the spring of 1964, where they played a gig in Seattle. He recorded a few songs, which included Testify. This song is practically lacking any dynamics, and it's more like listening to a revivalist sermon than an actual studio production. But this is considered to be his first demonstration of lead guitar chops to be recorded on vinyl. The song fell completely flat when it hit the radio, and soon Jimmy left the band by the fall of 1964, but briefly found himself returning to work with the brothers the next year, where they recorded Move Over and Let Me Dance, as well as Have You Ever Been Disappointed. He soon joined Little Richard's band, where he played under the names Maurice James. Richard was impressed with Hendrix's obvious talent, but soon grew to resent him, since Richard felt that Jimmy would upstage him whenever he got the chance. He said in an episode of VH1's Legends, on the stage he would actually take the show. People would scream, and I thought they were screaming for me. I look over and they're screaming for Jimmy. So I had to darken the lights. He'd be playing the guitar with his teeth. The summer of 1965 had Jimmy entering the studio with Little Richard to record a few tracks for VJ Records. A few awesome songs came out of this session, including the stomper Dance A Go-Go, which is sometimes called Dancing All Around the World. And probably the best from this bunch, I Don't Know What You've Got But It's Got Me, was written by Don Covey. I Don't Know What You've Got was released in November of 1965, missing the pop charts, but it hit number 12 on the R&B list, marking Jimmy's first song to make an appearance on the charts. July of 1965 saw Jimmy making an early television appearance on Night Train while Little Richard was touring. Richard did not appear, choosing to give the spotlight to Buddy Travis and Stacy Johnson. You can actually check this out on YouTube. He's super obvious to spot, and his trademark playing style is clearly evident in this early video. Hendrix and Richard continued to clash over Jimmy's style, with Jimmy later saying that Richard was the only one that was allowed to be pretty. It wasn't long after that night train broadcast, in fact, when Hendrix and Little Richard parted ways for good. In a letter that he wrote to his father, Jimmy said that he hadn't been paid in five and a half weeks, and you can't live on promises when you're on the road. 
Little Richard's brother, Robert, who was also his tour manager, insisted that he fired Hendricks. He said that he was always late and that he always flirted with the girls. After playing the Apollo, Hendricks had apparently missed a bus and that was the final straw. The pair apparently had some words and Robert told Jimmy that they just didn't put up with that kind of bullshit. In later years, Little Richard dubbed Jimi Hendrix the greatest guitar player that he had ever had in his band, and not a single one of his men had ever came close to his level of talent. He then made his way back to New York City, where in October of 1965, Hendrix was introduced to Curtis Knight in the lobby of the Americana Hotel. Curtis Knight was the frontman of a group called The Squires. Knight and Hendrix hit it off immediately, and the next day, they found themselves jamming at Studio 76. From these jams came several awesome songs featuring Jimmy, including a personal favorite of mine, the instrumental Hornet's Nest. This song has Jimmy's fingerprints all over it, and if you've never heard it, look it up, it's awesome. This song is credited with being Jimmy's first composer credit. Bizarrely, some of Jimmy's early recording work was actually used by B-movie horror bombshell Jane Mansfield and appeared on her 1967 song, Suey, which was recorded the previous year. It features ridiculous lines like, It makes my liver quiver and it makes my knees freeze. Jimmy never mentioned this work in interviews, so some question its validity, but if it was Jimmy, it was probably done without his knowledge and likely without his consent. There's a good chance Jimmy had no idea of his involvement with this, since the recording was owned by Al Chalpin, and he was notorious for selling off recordings to make a quick buck. Her song Suey would be released just after her horrific death. Jimmy also did recording and session work with Lonnie Youngblood around this time, which produced several fantastic singles, including Hot Trigger, which is phenomenal and really shows Hendrix's growing skill on the guitar. Soul Food and My Girl, She's a Fox are also great songs from these recording sessions. The latter song's name bears a strong resemblance to a later, iconic Hendrix song. In addition to this work with Lonnie Youngblood, he also worked with the King Curtis Orchestra once. Jimmy and Pridian had an extremely passionate relationship, with her playing the role of muse and mentor. In her mind, they were never really a couple and were definitely not mutually exclusive. Jimmy was at first extremely jealous of this, but he eventually accepted the fact that she would just never be entirely committed to him. If you're enjoying the show, please leave a 5-star review and don't forget to subscribe so that you never miss a new episode. Sources for this episode include Biography.com, Rolling Stone, JimmyHendrix.com, History Link, and Room Full of Mirrors by Charles R. Cross. A special thanks goes out to Al Hirsch for providing the music for the podcast. Thank you for listening to episode 16, Jimi Hendrix, A West Coast Seattle Boy, Part 1. Part 2 will be released next week. If you have any questions about the show, please contact historyoftheevergreenstatepod at gmail.com. That email address can also be found in the episode description in addition to the link to buy me a coffee which offers you, the listener, the opportunity to support this show and to keep it going. One time and monthly donations will go towards research material to assist me in continuing to put out these episodes. Thank you for listening to another episode of the History of the Evergreen State Podcast. And until next time, I'm your host, John C. Stay safe out there, everyone. There's peace on the Skokomish, on the Queets and on the Hull. 
There's come on the Nisqually, born of ageless ice and snow. A land that nature loves so much, she stays the whole year round. I trade a royal palace for a shack on Puget Sound. There's Jimicum and Stillicum, where spouts the gooey duck. The singing Stillaguamish and the swirling Skookum Chuck. And Moclips and Copalis, where the razor clams abound. A little bit of heaven is a shack on Puget Sound. A little bit of heaven is a shack on Puget Sound.